You're listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Actually, y'all just sit down. Everyone, everyone, stand back up. Stand back up. We're some energy in this place this morning. All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say something and you're going to repeat it. And this is going to be really bad at the beginning and we're going to get better towards the end. Okay. And so for those of, it, those of you in the room who are a Christian, this, this would be true for you. And so I'm going to say one thing and you repeat it right after. So in Christ, in Christ. I, can sing. I can sing in the victory. One more time. In Christ, Christ, I can sing sing. in the victory. victory. One more time. In Christ, Christ. loud, I can sing sing. in the victory. victory. Amen? Amen. All right, y'all can be seated. Good job. That's pretty good for some Baptists. That's that's pretty good. Y'all can give yourself a hand. All right. Hey, if if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. Verses 11 and 12, I say, if you have your Bibles, this is probably a good place to have your Bible. But if you do not have one, there's a um, hard copy in the chair in front of you. It's a little black ESV Bible. Um, if you don't own one, that is our gift to you. So um, those that are in the journey, uh, our, our group of college students and young adults that meet on Tuesday night, uh, they already know that many, many times when I preach, this is coming. But I'll, I'll warn you, as, as a new dad, I basically utilize every opportunity I can to talk about how great my little baby girl is. Her, her name is Eleanor. She's about five months old. Um, and uh, for you parents in the room, what you probably resonate with is the reality that when you become a parent, you learn a lot about babies, don't you? You learn a whole lot about babies. And so uh, there are especially the, the good things that you learn. And so from the time that she's born, there's things that you have to learn so that she survives. That's, that's a really good thing to know. But I'll spare you those details. One of the things that I've loved is seeing her grow and develop and get a little personality about her, right? Like there's a, there's a sweetness, but I can already see some feistiness. Right? They're going to have to address like later on, but she gets that from her mom, not from me. Um, anyway, but we're, we're going we're to work on that later. But one of the things that she does that I just think is, is so beautiful is I've began to see how she can uh, see uh, me coming from far away. She can hear my voice when I walk into the room and she's reacting to when I say things or I'm goofy. Uh, I'm always goofy, but like when I'm intentionally goofy, saying things that make her laugh. And it's been real cool. I've, I've seen her the past several weeks. Uh, I'll say something and she'll be on the other side of the room. She'll be kind of like looking around, you know, kind of jerking around just because she wants to see dad, right? And that's a, that's a really sweet, sweet thing and, and feeling. And so those of you that are parents in the room, you resonate with that. Those of you that aren't, just someday you'll, you'll know, you'll find out. But also parents in the room, you can agree with me here. There are some things you learn about kids and raising kids that are really hard things, right? (laughs) Things about raising a kid that is maybe people don't tell you because they don't want you to be scared beforehand. But like, let me let me just give you an example. With a baby or with Eleanor, I never, ever have to wonder if she's not happy, (laughs) right? She tells me, she lets me know she's not happy. I, I never have to wonder if she's hungry. You know, I never have to wonder if she uh, is not getting her way like she tells me by yelling and screaming. And, and so 
some of you probably have friends that are like this, that are more on the quiet side, or, or maybe even one spouse is more extroverted and introverted. And, and to find out if something's wrong, you kind of have to probe a little bit. Hey, is everything okay? Like, you just, you seem kind of quiet. And like, Eleanor's not like that. She will let you know. She is very extroverted and likes to communicate her feelings to everybody. And so uh, one of the things that I was thinking about, I don't want to pick on Eleanor too much, is, okay, so this concept, she's an infant, she's a baby. When anything goes against the way she wants it to, when she's not getting her way, she screams, she cries, she yells, she gets mad until she gets her way. I mean, going from this sweet, cute little thing one minute to the next minute, it's looking like something out of the movie Poltergeist. And I'm like calling an exorcist and he's like red eyes. I'm like, yes, got red eyes, like convulsing. Yes, I'm like levitating off the ground a little bit. Yes, like all those things. And so when I see that in Eleanor, um, that, an exaggeration, I hope you all know that. Everything's okay in the roads home. Um, honestly, I, I, I wanna stop picking on her for a minute. And, and are we not like that as Christians? Can we not encounter situations and times where things aren't going exactly the way that we want them or maybe light degrees of suffering or maybe we're just not getting our way and something happens in us and, and we revert to this. Uh, someone was waving back there. I thought they were saying that, yeah, that's me, that's me. <laughs> um, we kind of revert to this infantile sort of Eleanor-like type child thing. We, we cry and we, and we whine until we, until we get our way. You kind of see where I'm going with this? And, and, I, and I do this as well. And I, I think there are certain things that um, play into that. And so, for example, I've seen this a lot in 2020. Like, I, you know what? I've never heard in 2020 thus far, I've never heard someone say the words, things are really going well for me this year. <laughs> like I, I haven't heard anyone say that about this year. The heat's been turned up and in many ways we've been going through a pandemic. It's an election year. There are, there are issues that have really always been around, social issues kind of coming up and, and, and you're kind of asked to pick a side and our nation is kind of polarized and we watch presidential debates, if you want to call that a debate. Um, the vice president's debate was a little bit better. Um, there's a lot of just chaos going around. So in our daily life, lives, the heat has been turned up. And I would just, I hope you resonate with the fact that, man, things probably, some things are good for you, but probably are not going how you expected, not going your, your way. And the reason I point this out is because what I've seen, even in myself this year, is that as I've looked back at the illustration, as I see Eleanor acting sweet, I'm like, that's Eleanor. When I see her acting like, like she's crazy and screaming all that, I'm like, that's not Eleanor. But when I look at myself sometimes this year and look at others, I sometimes think, man, that's not how a Christian's supposed to act. E even when things are hard, even when the heat's turned up. And so I think it, that kind of begs the question this morning and, uh, and hopefully an encouraging question that we can dive into is, how are Christians supposed to act when under trial? How are God's people supposed to act when we go through suffering? And we're going to be in the, in the book of, uh, in the letter, really, of 1 Peter. And I would say they're an ideal specimen of Christian suffering. They were familiar with the concept of being chased down and people trying to kill you and, and effectively killing it many times just because you were a Christian. They were familiar with the year not going quite how they had planned. There was even something called the Antonin Plague that uh, was really close to this time where many people were in a pandemic and, and Christians were, were kind of forced to decide how they were going to act and how are they were going to step into the issues of their day just like we are. And so if y'all would, 
Lean into this question with me and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 through 12. We're asking, how are God's people supposed to act when under trial? Verses 11 through 12 in chapter 2. <clears throat> Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. How are God's people supposed to act when under trials? Well, we, we look at verse 11. It's saying to, uh, as, as beloved people, or I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So God's people should wage war with sin in light of their new identity. And so these, this is a really rich passage. And so we're gonna define some terms, if you will, with me. I hope some of you that are nerds in the room and like to know original meanings and what the words mean, like this is your day, all right? So lean in, get that notepad out, get the pen out. We're gonna, we're gonna go for it. Um, this word beloved, I love this word beloved. It's the same word, check this out. This is Peter talking to Christians. It's actually the same word that God the Father uses with Jesus. In Matthew 3, 17, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. The same word that God the Father bestows on Jesus, the son of God. This is the same word, beloved. That's what we're called. We see this word 61 times in all the New Testament, two times in 1 Peter, six times in 2 Peter. And so the question begs, who, who is beloved? Who does that mean? Well, Romans 1, 7, is, it's, it's actually the same Greek word here. When, when Paul is addressing Christians, when Peter is addressing Christians, it means God's people because really the core of our identity, listen to this, the core of your identity, the best thing that you could ever say about yourself is that you are loved by God. Amen? Amen? Make sure you're awake this morning. And in connection to verse 10 in 2 Peter, once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're not only God's people, we are God's beloved people. Like this is an exclusive title. I hope you see that. God loves all people, but to call someone beloved, that is a unique title for Christians only. Those covered in the righteousness of Christ. Those who God has adopted as sons and daughters in Christ. 1 John 4.10 says this about this type of love. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the, the next level of this love, it just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. It's not that we've loved God and so that he's loved us. It's no, he loved us first. It's an initiating love. And then he bestows on us the title, beloved. Isn't that beautiful? And so when we're asking the question, hey, how are we, God's people supposed to act when under trials? You gotta know that you are beloved. You have a new identity. And then we keep moving forward and we see that Peter uses the words, I urge you. So when he urged someone that should show importance, like it should show it's not a suggestion, right? Like it is an urgent situation. I um, remember whenever I uh, proposed to my wife, Caitlin, do you think that I, urged her or merely suggested that, that she should marry me? Which one do you think I did? <laughs> hey, just, just think about it. No, no, I was, I was urging her. And some of you, if you've seen her and you've seen me, you're thinking, man, you are very, very persuasive, all right? Like, I get it, all right? We don't have to go there, all right? Be nice, be nice, all right? I'm preaching twice today. Give me, give me some grace, tell me afterwards. Anyway, so 
I, I went all out, right? Like I, I played a song. I had friends and family there. I don't know how great the song was, but it was just the, I mean, it was an expression, okay? Anyway, I, and then, so I do all these things, have, to have the setting just right, and then I top it off with a ring, right? And so I, I wasn't just making a mere suggestion. Like it was within my actions, I was urging her like, hey, I love you, will, will you marry me? And so as we keep going forward in this passage, what I want to tell you is that when we read really all of Scripture, but this is a big flashing red light saying, hey, when it uses the word I I urge you, we need to lean in a little bit. That means that Peter's original intention is not for you to walk away today just like, "Mm, okay, cool suggestion. Like it's not a yield sign, okay? Like I know how yield signs work in West Texas, all right? We barely stop at stop signs, all right? And so um, this is an urging. And so to walk away unresponsive to this exhortation is not, not an option. So let's lean in together. So he's urging us as the beloved, those bestowed with this beautiful title of God's love and mercy and grace. And he tells us that we are what? Sojourners and exiles. Literally, this word sojourner means foreigner in the Greek text. He's calling us foreigners. Exile. Literally one that is in a strange land or a land that is not their own. Let me ask you, as a Christian trying to live faithfully to the gospel, have you ever felt like you stuck out a little bit? You ever felt like a foreigner? (laughs) You ever been in settings where you thought, "Mm, yeah, I stick out here. To follow Christ right now in this situation, I'm going to stick out. I'm going to be against the grain. See, the fact is, is that ultimately we're supposed to feel like foreigners here. We're supposed to stick out. Because we are God's holy, beloved children in a sinful world where the world's loyal citizens have a different king. Are you tracking with me there? I often share about my experiences in, um, in East Asia. And um, so that was an area, obviously, another country, not the United States, where I'm a, a foreigner. And I, I, had, I went in with something that a lot of us have. It's called ethnocentrism. It, it means that we kind of only think about the world through the lens of where we're from. All right, like America is the center of the universe, right? And so I remember going outside one day in East Asia and having the thought like, man, there are a lot of East Asian people out here. Like, no, no kidding. And I thought, and then it dawned on me like, oh yeah, this is, this isn't America. Like, I'm the foreigner. I'm the, one who, I'm the one who sticks out. And so what would happen is I, we would go places, Caitlin, I would go places and everyone would stare at us. Like we quite literally stuck out. There was some areas of this little city, some pockets of this little city, they had not seen a white person before, all right? I'm talking about foreigners, I'm talking about different country, different land. There was actually one old lady, I, I kid you not, she obviously had never seen a foreigner before. And we were, pretend we were sitting right there. She was walking and staring like this and almost ran into a tree like that. Like she was so adamant about staring at us. We stuck out so much that it was, it stopped people in their tracks. They noticed very quickly, hey, they don't talk like we do. They don't like the same food that we do. They don't behave the same way that we do. They don't think about the world in the same way that we do. And I love this connection because look, friends, that's the, imagery that's the mindset that scripture is saying hey you're a foreigner in this world as a christian you're going to stick out a little bit we will naturally check this out be countercultural people simply by obeying the word of god 
People are going to look and say, they don't, they don't have the same interest as us. They don't talk the same way we do. They don't act the same way we do. They don't look at the world the same way that we do. Like, they're a little weird, right? And I would go so far as to say, if we always seem in harmony with the world and the culture at large around us, if, if we've kind of kicked back in the, in the recliner of our culture and gotten comfy and cozy, I would say, that's an indictment on us. It, it would mean that we, in fact, have become so comfortable that we love this world so much and we find ourselves not in opposition to the world and the cultural movements at all, we're probably not living faithfully to the Lord and his calling to holiness and faithfulness. I don't say that to be mean. I say that to help us mature. So Christian, if you're living faithfully to God's calling, look, you're gonna stick out. Like, embrace that. Embrace being awkward. Embrace being a little bit weird for standing on the word of God in this day and age, even when it's hard. We move forward to this word abstain. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. And um, just a quick definition, you'll find out abstain means to, to have one thing by separating from another thing. So the idea is that we, we want to have, as Christians, we want to have holiness. We want to pursue holiness. It's impossible if we're not abstaining from the passions of the flesh. In other words, you have to pick one or the other. You can't have both holiness and passions of the flesh. We choose a side, holiness or, or the flesh. There's um, a married couple that Caitlin and I got to serve with in ministry, and they're, they're pretty funny the way that they have kind of banter going back and forth sometimes. And uh, they, they were telling a story about early on in their marriage, um, Amy, the wife, and, and Brad, was, Brad was the husband, um, they were trying to talk about how to do house chores, right? And, you know, maybe who vacuums and, and who does the dishes and, and when and how and, and why even, you know, and who takes out the trash, all these things. Well, it became evident, you know, Brad was pretty laid back. I think like most of us guys are. And, and Amy uh, was trying to instruct him a little bit, right? Help him out just a little bit. And what became obvious is that maybe there was just a little bit of micromanagement kind of going on. Um, and Brad started getting kind of flustered. And then he goes, look, Amy, you can tell me what to do or you can tell me how to do it, but you can't do both. Y'all get that at all? Yeah, got it. So he was saying, like, basically, like, back off, right? And I, and I love that story. Husbands, don't use that, all right? Don't use that. I think he got in trouble for that one. But when I think about that story, I think that's what Peter's kind of tapping into when he says to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Man, you, you either get to have one or the other. You can't have both. You can't pursue holiness and the passions of the flesh at the same time. That's not how, that's not how abstaining works, can't pursue the passions of the flesh and holiness. There's, there's only room for one. Now here's what's very interesting. How many of you, by raise of hand, when you hear the, the, the terminology, passions of the flesh, do you not think of like, like really bad sins, right? Is that fair, by raise of hands? You hear pass- okay, one of you, awesome, great. I'll just skip this metaphor. Um, anyway, you should, right? You hear passions of the flesh, like, oh, it sounds like terrible things, like in passion he murdered this person or, or whatever it may be. Well, what's really, really interesting is this specific terminology is actually referring not to these so-called extreme sins that we like to label, but it's actually a lusting after basic human physical desires. It's, it's desires that we all have, so desires for, um, like money, to, to have money, to be able to 
pay for things. I believe you could say God ordained the, the world economy to, so that money can circulate and all that good stuff. I'm not an economist, so that's about as good a terminology as I can use. And so that, that's a good thing, right? And, and having possessions, having personal capital and business capital, that's not a bad thing. And, and sex and, and love and, and hunger, even food, what it's saying is that these are good things that God's created, but it's when you're lusting after these desires so much that they become an idol. That is a passion of the flesh. And so these are things that we can't escape. It's, it's what Romans chapter 1, 24 to 25 is talking about, um, that therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And so what we can so easily do, friends, I hope you see this sometimes, is we can take something like money and we can turn that into a God and, and, and worship it. We can take something that our creator has instituted and ordained in our daily ethos and we can turn that into an idol. We can worship that thing. And, and what that does is it's basically slapping God in the face and saying, I don't want you, I want your stuff. I don't want the blessing of knowing you and being with you. I just want the blessings you give to me. Can I have all the things you give me without ever talking to you? It's, it's the prodigal who says to his father, I want the inheritance, I want your money, but I don't want a relationship with you. And it says that these very things, these basic human desires we can turn into a God, it says that they're waging war against our souls. War language used, you picture soldiers, like we're, we're familiar with, with war and, and, and battles and, and, and wars that may come, wars that have passed. But it's waging war against our souls. What is, what is a soul? Like, for instance, is it okay? Like, is my body okay? Like, if it's just my soul, like, no worries. Having a soul is unique to being created in the image of God. I love my little miniature golden doodle. He's a cute little guy, but, but, but God didn't give him a soul. He did not create Halpert, the miniature golden doodle, in the image of God. <laughs> he wasn't concerned that Halpert would one day be covered in the righteousness of Jesus through the gospel. He wasn't concerned with that. That's something that us as human beings have. There are times when it's actually translated as life or spirit. So what this means, what's being, the war that's being waged is waged against the deepest part of who we are. Our souls are eternal. So this means eternity is at stake in this war. Y'all see that? Y'all tracking with that? Now, I'll tell you what, I, I like a good war movie. Who's all seen Saving Private Ryan in this room? If you haven't seen it, if you're of appropriate age, you need to see it. Best movie ever. My favorite movie of all time. And what's very interesting is that um, basically they're told that Private Ryan, all of his brothers have passed away and they're gonna try to get him off the battlefield. They're gonna try to get him back home so that he can take care of, of his mother. And so what, what happens is you got uh, Tom Hanks and a, and a couple other big names, soldiers, not like Tom Hanks in real life, y'all know that. Um, anyway, and he's, they're going out, they're going to find uh, Private Ryan. They find a wrong Private Ryan. And that, that was a funny story. And anyway, so they finally find the, the right Private Ryan and and what they do is because they're trying to get him back safely, they actually have to engage in some battles and some little skirmishes that they weren't planning on getting in just to, just to save his life. And so many of them actually lost their life just to protect one man, like several, several men lost lives just to protect one man. They, they went to extreme lengths to guard and protect Private Ryan so that he may live. 
The image that I get from that picture is the image I think that Peter and God's word is kind of calling out for us to see this morning is that what links are you going to go to to guard your soul so that the passions of the flesh will not win that war? Amen? What links will you go to? So thankfully, as believers, we have the power of the Holy Spirit within us to fight this. That's very important to know. Like, if you're trying to do this, if you're engaging in the, in the war against the flesh, against your sin, this is what Galatians 5 is really talking about, with this sort of white-knuckled self-talk, no, 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 don't do that, be a good person, you're not going to make it. This is pleading with the Holy Spirit in this fight. This is picking up the sword of God's words. This is picking up and, and utilizing your resources that God has actually placed within you, namely his presence, to, to win this fight. So we keep away from these passions so that we can walk in holiness, which is what God has called us to. Brothers and sisters, just one closing thought on, on, on the war language. Listen, we're, we're already at war, okay? We're already, it's already happening. We're either passive against that war or we pick up a sword and we fight. We pick up that weapon and we fight, namely God's word. So I know some of you are probably asking and, and your objection this morning might be, hey, I don't really think I struggle with this. I don't think I struggle with the passions of the flesh that you're talking about, so I'm good, right? I'm so glad you clarified that definition. Yeah, I don't really struggle with that. Well, what I would say is that even though Peter's being very specific, I would say all, all sin is waging war against us. I, I say Satan, Satan can use anything. He's pretty creative, all right? Not as creative as God, not even close. But he can use anything. And so I'd utilize the whole of Scripture to tell you that sin is waging war against our souls, all sin, and that Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy. So let me ask you this. In the past week, have you gossiped any? Have you slandered have you used harsh words? Have you spoken poorly about someone because they aren't going to vote the same way you will? Have you refused to forgive? You see, even those things that are residing in you, it's kind of inner sins, I would say even more so, can wage war on your souls. So I'd ask you a question, friends, not to be hateful, but to be helpful. Are you winning or losing that war? And so I would say wherever you land with that, maybe you're kind of like me. I've been, I can so easily be in this kind of gall of negativity, pessimism. Let's together pick up that sword and fight again, amen? In, in a biblical community, that's what small groups are for. That's what connect groups are for on Tuesday night. That's what community is for, that together in the community of the church, we can pick up that sword again, remember who we are as God's people. So you're looking at the temptation to sin in various ways, and you're saying, that's not who I am anymore. I, I would tell myself, Cole, that's not who you are anymore. You're beloved. God has bestowed his mercy and grace upon you and called you to live in holiness. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. God has called you to live in such a way that people might look at you and give a taste, get a, a foreshadowing of the beauty and glory of Jesus. And the same is true for you, believer. And so we're so, we're so defensive against sin. Actually, we're, we need to be on the offensive. We need to be going out as beloved people. And that's where we're going to Next, really, how can we be on the offensive as God's people? And so even under trial, answering that first question, how are we supposed to act? Even under trial, God's people should wage war with sin in light of their new identity. 
look, we looked at the inward life of a Christian. Let's look at some outward manifestations that should be happening and occurring. Y'all turn with me to 1 Peter 2, 12 now. It says this, to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. How are we supposed to act when under trial? God's people should proclaim the gospel in word and in deed. And so what I mean by in word, y'all look at verse nine. This is amazing. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? What purpose is that? Why did God choose you? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Friends, we are called to proclaim. That means verbally speaking. The gospel should be coming out of our mouths. And for some reason, I don't know if you've heard this before, there's this idea that it's okay to never actually verbalize the gospel. And it doesn't have to be this beautiful presentation. It doesn't have to be like a, a sermon, but just merely telling your story. But it's just, it's crazy to think about this. Think about the best thing that has ever happened to you, friends. The best thing that has ever happened to you and will ever happen to you. Why? Would you not talk about that? But you're going to talk about the Cowboys game later. That's crazy because they're going to lose anyway. So I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm a Cowboys fan, but that just means more heartbreak for me every Sunday. Um, do you ever think about that? Like, it's so crazy. Like, I know there's the, the temptation to say, well, it's just not my gifting or, or whatever. And I would, just, I would just ask you, okay, like I, I understand maybe more on the introverted side. Like I, I, I get that. I, I kind of lean that way, honestly. Um, maybe you don't feel like that's your gifting. I would just say, can you, can you just verbalize what God's done for you? We can verbal. We love talking about ourselves, right? <laughs> just tap into that. Talk about what God has done in your life. And so I hope that's clear. We're proclaiming, in verse nine, the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. Just, just describe in your own words, in your life, how, how has God called you out of darkness into light? I hope that's simple enough for you. You're going to mess up. It's going to be awkward. It shouldn't sound like a polished sermon. We're real people. It's just conversations with lost people. Whenever I go out on Tech's campus and share the gospel, um, I, I'm, not, I'm not talking like I am up here. <laughs> Thank goodness. It would be weird. Just having a conversation. I want you to look around the room for a second. I'll give you permission to disengage from everyone. Just look around the room. Make sure you can get a good glance of everyone. All right. You don't have to remember faces and everything, but can I see everyone? What you think about this? Every person in this room, every person in this room who is a Christian at one time had someone tell them about Jesus and the gospel. Verbally tell them. Every person in this room who's a Christian. Now I want to ask you, how will others know? The same way, right? The same way. And God's actually calling you into that. Us. He wants to use me and you to tell others about the greatest news that you're ever going to hear. We hear a lot of bad news, all right? You know that. <laughs> the greatest news that you could ever hear. Not just good news, the greatest. He wants to actually utilize us, friends. So the gospel was designed to be pouring out of the mouths of God's people. Amen? Amen. But our actions are so important. 
It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So this is just the idea of being a person of integrity. I think it's being consistent in your lifestyle with the character of Jesus. So you're trying to be like Jesus to other people. And I know the objection in our day that I hear a lot, especially in the South, when we're not used to encountering a lot of persecution and opposition yet, because the primary worldview is that everyone thinks they're a Christian, right? But I know that some of us, when we do encounter a little bit of opposition, we'll say, but Christians are, are getting attacked for what we believe. And I would say, yes, you're right. That's that's where this next part in the verse comes into play in verse 12. They, we, they may speak against you as evildoers. They may look and see what we believe as Christians and speak evil of those things. This is a reality. You will be spoken against. You will have opposition. And so let's like take a step back for a minute and just examine American culture right now to further illustrate what you probably already know. What's happening is there's a, a growing outrage at approaching the subject of morality with a biblical worldview. We're living in a day and age where the only thing that is accepted as objective truth is that there is no objective truth. Where the only consistency in their worldview is in being inconsistent. In a time where people will experience demonic convulsing at the thought of someone appealing to an authority for moralistic standards where wrong is anything against them and their agenda, where hate is anything or anyone that simply disagrees with you. The world, ironically, friends, will borrow from our Christian worldview, will borrow from the Bible and demand that we love them, demand that we accept them, even in their rampant immorality, while simultaneously having no foundation to stand upon as they deny the authority of Scripture and the author of love himself, Jesus. So I agree with you. <laughs> Absolutely, we're opposed. Absolutely. But what do we do about it? We continue to be faithful. Amen? We continue to proclaim the gospel, proclaim the word of God. We're going to speak truth into this chaotic, upside-down world and culture we live in. We will live lives that are consistent with this book. We're going to believe the words of the prophet Isaiah that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That's what we're going to do. If we're living honorable lives, outsiders will not have anything to hold against us because we'll be living in alignment to God's word. It would be better to be condemned before men than God. I'd rather be standing innocent and clean before God for standing on his word. And here's the beautiful part. Here's, here's where we really look outward. Here's where I want to change your perspective. So we can be like, oh man, it's hard to be a Christian. I feel that sometimes. I'm not making fun of you. Here's the redemption of this. Y'all pay attention. In verse 12, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We, we see this in, in Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 16. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. We want people to see us doing good to them, to each other in the church. Doesn't Jesus say that the way they're going to know that you're truly my disciples is how you love one another? So they need to see the church loving one another, other Christians. And that our hope is when they see us doing this good, when they see our lives as walking temples of the Holy Spirit, they're going to glorify God. And what that means on the day of visitation, when Jesus comes back, the hope is that by seeing the, the witness of faithful Christians, that a lot and a lot of unbelievers will witness our lives and turn and trust and believe 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the best way you could ever glorify God with your life is to believe in the provision that he has made for fallen sinful creatures like you and me that we might be redeemed and reconciled and restored and forgiven before him. On that day of visitation, we hope, we hope, I hope this is your prayer. I know people that don't believe in Christianity can say some hateful, mean things. They got about 70, 80 years to do that. You know that? That's it. You're gonna experience suffering for just a a short momentary bit of time. Y'all lean into this. I hope that before the return of Jesus and his judgment on sinners, I hope that God would shine his light through us. I hope that people would see our good works, see our faithfulness, and believe in God by glorifying through him. We're hoping for our lost neighbors, our lost coworkers, our lost classmates, our boss, who the way they treat us is obviously an unbeliever. (laughs) We hope even for them that they will be people who when when, when the Lord returns on that glorious day, that they're not in fear and trembling because they know their eternal doom, but we rather hope that it would be a glorious, beautiful day that they're rejoicing with us, amen? Cole, you don't understand. You hear all that? How many times have we heard the, the good old saying, our country's going to hell in a handbasket, right? <laughs> Means no hope. Man, I would just ask you to that as, as we're kind of closing. Is, is your outlook informed? When you, when, when you think that, when you say that, is your outlook informed by God's word or something else? Because it seems like the, that God is in the business of saving people that look unsavable. It seems that God is in the business of bringing hope to the hopeless, amen? It seems that God is in the business of restoring things that look unrestorable. That's the God that we're dealing with. And so when you're tempted to have this negative outlook, Christian, let me just tell you, we have a God of hope. We have a God who who says, what? You don't think I can save them? You don't think I can turn this around? Watch me. It seems that God's hope is that even for those that seem like they couldn't be any further from him, that they would one day believe through the faithful witness of us, God's people. The Roman Emperor Julian once said, he regretted the progress of Christianity because it pulled people away from the Roman gods. He said, Atheism, actually, they thought Christianity was atheism because they only believed in one God and they didn't have this plurality of all these idols, but that's referring to the Christian faith. He said, the Christian faith has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render him. He's saying that Christians, their testimony and how they helped people was actually bringing people to God. They were leaving the gods of Rome to serve the one true God. So friends, as we tend to look outward and go out with a a mission to live as God's kingdom people, to live as witnesses, to live as people who are proclaiming the gospel in word and deed, please don't underestimate the power of Christ-likeness towards lost people (laughs) 
in a dying world. Don't underestimate that. And if there was ever a time where it seemed hopeless, I can tell you for sure there have been worse times for the kingdom of God than right now, believe it or not. There have been far, far worse times, far more challenging times. And here's the reality. On a global scale, I'll check this out. On a global scale, did you know that Muslims are coming to Christ by millions in the Middle East? In the past couple of years, there have been more Muslims turning to Jesus than there has been in the history of Christianity. Just in the past couple of years. In the middle of a pandemic. And check this out. Also in the middle of a pandemic, Christianity continues to grow in China to the point where pretty soon there's probably estimates say going to be more Christians in China than the entire population of the United States. Thousands have been reached through the world through sermons preached just right here at Southcrest in the height of COVID. I was talking to Jerry Newman in the height of the COVID pandemic, not even including international audiences. 50,000 people viewed sermons one week that we were just broadcasting and sending out hearing the gospel. Like our reach actually expanded during a global pandemic. We had 10, 15 times the views just in the journey ministry, our college and young adult ministry during the height of COVID. So what I'm telling you is so tempting. Is, oh man, everything's bad. No, reality is that on a global scale, God is moving. The kingdom is shaking. And that's because throughout Christian history, God's people have not been slowed down by persecution or opposition. Rather, it sometimes goes to set the church on fire. Because God's people display via them knowing that they're beloved people waging war against the passions of the the flesh. God's people display knowing that they're supposed to proclaim the gospel through word and deed no matter what their circumstances, that God is good, that he is faithful, that the gospel is true. Amen? So that's what we're going to do. He uses the faithful witness of his people who are proclaiming the gospel in word and deed. So let's do that, church. Proclaim the gospel in word and deed, no matter what. As I close this morning, I I know some of you maybe can feel like me. Some of you feel like you just totally blew it, right? You hear about, man, I have... I have not been waging war against the flesh. I've, I've been, I haven't picked up my sword. I, I've been like taking a rest on the battlefield, so to speak. Right? You can sometimes feel that way. Or you can think, man, proclaiming the gospel in word and deed, if I'm honest, I haven't really said much. I've kind of just hoped that if I, I'm kind and open a door for somebody that they'll know I'm a Christian and they'll know the gospel, right? <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. I've been there too. But if you feel like you've maybe blown it this morning and you some hope, I... I think it's so interesting. The one who's writing our epistle this morning, Peter, he also blew it. You remember Peter's story? Oh, Jesus, I'll never deny you. I'll, I'll follow you to, to the end, to death. It's a paraphrase, right? Jesus is like, that rooster's gonna make a sound three times and you're gonna be done with me, bro. <laughs> He's gonna crow, right? What happens? Rooster crows three times, Peter, bam, 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 denies Jesus. Some versions indicate that possibly some kind of even curse he could have spoken to just totally separate himself and deny any connection with Jesus. Like, I mean, would you agree that's blowing it? Like, he blew it. But then we see later on, Jesus returns to Peter. They come face to face, the risen Jesus. 
and have this dialogue. And, and rather than condemning Peter, they all, they all lean into this, rather than condemning Peter, like, I can't believe you did that. <laughs> Jesus gave Peter a mission. <laughs> he gave him a purpose and an identity. He said, feed, feed my sheep, feed my flock, love my sheep, love my flock, care for them. So friends, what, what is Jesus' response to those of us that have blown it? It's the same that it was 2,000 years ago. He restores us and he gives us a purpose. He gives us a mission. He said, feed my flock. Go out. So Peter, who blew it, just like we can blow it, he went from denying Jesus three times to doing what verse nine says, proclaiming his excellencies all the way to the point of death. Fox's Book of Martyrs says he was crucified upside down. <laughs> he gave his whole life for him. Friends, remember who you are today as God's beloved sojourners. Remember the call to holiness that Peter exhorts us to. Remember there is a war being waged right now against our very souls. And remember the war is being won right now in the hearts of every unbeliever out there. And so what do we do in response to that? We know there's a war either way, so we pick a side. Do we give way to the passions of the flesh or do we pick up the weapon called faithfulness to God? The latter is what God's people do. Because it's not only our souls that are at stake, but it's a matter of giving rightful glory to our creator. And we hope as the lost and dying world actually looks upon us, that God would shine the light of his glory into many, many hearts and they would re rejoice with us upon Christ's return. You're feeling lost, you're feeling out of place as a Christian in 2020. Remember this, as sojourners, we may not know where we are, but we can always know who we are. We may not belong here for long, but we can remember who we belong to. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this truth this morning. We love you. We're grateful for your word, grateful for you calling us beloved in Christ. And we're going to respond and worship to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church.